This is a podcast by One Life Christian Church in Baldwin, New York. We pray that the following podcast would encourage you, build you up in the gospel, and lead you closer to Jesus. We remind you that these are simply tools to help you in your walk and ask that you still look for a local church to attend and serve in. Welcome to the living room. If you'll open up your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1. We'll start. And if you need a Bible, there's a Bible right under your seat or under the seat in front of you. If you do not have a Bible, please take one with you. Write your name in it. If you need me to dedicate it to you, I will do so. If you need somebody to sign it for you like Sergio, he'll do it. But take a Bible with you. We want you to have the Word of God with you everywhere you go. I'm also old school, Brian, because I don't preach with iPhones and iPads. I use paper. I leave that to Pastor Justin and Pastor Marlon. (laughs) Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will, sure, will, you will not surely die. And verse 5 says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Today, again, I'll be speaking to you for a moment about shame. Vocabulary.com, because we like our definitions, it says this about shame. A painful emotion resulting from an awareness of inadequacy or guilt. Again, a painful emotion resulting from an awareness of inadequacy or guilt. Carl Jung, the famous Swedish psychologist, describes shame as being a soul-eating emotion and called it the swampland of the soul. And this is such a vivid imagery of shame, right? Truly one of the darkest places that our hearts can live in, a place that stunts growth It kills your dreams, it steals your joy, and it resurrects your pain. Shame is a place where your hamster wheels are plenty. You can't face it, you can't always run away from it, but I thank God that in his word we're taught that we can surrender it. In my preparation for today's message, I was reading a lot of these online journals and psychology journals and what the professionals, mental health professionals have to say about shame. And a lot of it is scientific. This is what happens in the mind when you sit in places of guilt and shame. And these are the consequences. This is what can happen if you sit in it too long. And one of the things that was missing in comparison to some of the more gospel and Bible-based journals was that on the scientific end of it, there was no end. There was almost like no end in sight. 
It was always like take some medication, speak to somebody, find more friends, which is so, dif- so difficult for some of us and maybe easier for others. But in all of these Bible-based journals that I studied, they all shared this, to go to Christ, that Jesus would be our ultimate hope in spaces of shame. Earlier this week, I was here in the office and I got a phone call and the phone call was from a company looking to sell us a defibrillator. Does anybody know what a defibrillator is? All right, so that we all understand is if somebody, God forbid, their heart stops, um, this external machine, a defibrillator, creates this surge of power basically to restore your heartbeat. And they were looking to sell us this here at the church. And I remember when I was younger, we had an assembly at, at my high school. I went to Friends Academy. Anybody from Friends Academy? Anybody? Oh, there we go. All right, Melissa, I did that on purpose. And I remember we had an assembly just for them to show us this little box that cost so much money back then, but was so important in a space where there would be so many students. So they're calling me, and I'm like, you know what? That sounds, you know, keeping people alive in the church if their heart stops sounds like a pretty legit thing to have. And better yet, the salesperson, nothing worse to a salesman than someone who is selling. So you're sitting there, I'm listening to this pitch, and part of his pitch was, right off the bat, for churches, we have a great deal, 40% off. So I go online, and I start doing research while he's giving me his pitch. And I realize that all they did was jack up the price 40% to then drop it 40%. In case you didn't know, that's how deals work. They're always making money. So I'm looking online, and I'm looking at their prices, and I'm like, wow, like that's a lot of money for this machine. But in light of making sure somebody has life, it doesn't seem that bad. So I was sharing this morning that we're going to go ahead and open up a collection for a defibrillator in this house. So as I'm speaking to the salesman, one of the sales pitches was this. He says, if you have this machine, an AED in your building, there is an 80% chance of survival for someone whose heart has stopped. But without it, there's less than 10% than a 10% chance of survival. And then I thought about the fact that it's a salesman. So the 80 is probably high and the 10 might be low, but it still makes sense to me the urgency of having something like this for the sake of making sure that there is a higher probability of survival for someone who has maybe gone through this incident. And Because I'm a preacher, because I prepare sermons week after week, I said, wait, there's a message in this. And they caught me right when I was studying. And I said, there's a lesson here about this machine. Because even in all the money that it's worth, and in all the technology and science that goes into and development and research, it's still only an 80% chance. So while he's giving me his pitch, which was just okay, I'm listening, and then I'm also like, If only we would trust in Christ the way we trust in technologies. Because Jesus has a 100% survival rate. Where we may lose our life in the flesh, but our hearts are safe, our souls are safe in him. But in yet, right? Remember last week's service was trust God. Where he tells us, if you surrender to me, I can salvage everything that you need. That I established that is needed for you and yet we struggle to trust i'm grateful that jesus offers us hope and guarantees life without probabilities of death 
And shame, however, is one of those things that keeps us from that saving love of Jesus. In our opening text today, we started in Genesis chapter 3, we read the story of the moment in human history where sin enters the story of man. This is the very moment when we became sinners. The suffering of humanity in the flesh and the reason for why life on earth is engulfed in pain, sin, and brokenness. It begins right here in Genesis chapter 3. So if you're looking to blame somebody for everything that's gone wrong in your life and all of the pain that you feel, you look to Genesis chapter 3 and you look at this first woman and this first man and you say, it's because of you. And it is. It's because of them. This is where human suffering begins. Because the intention for the Garden of Eden by God and his design was not for us to go through the pain and the hurt and the strife that we go through today. It wasn't part of the design. A serpent coerces a woman. A woman, a man. Man and woman eat the forbidden fruit and humanity is forever doomed. Or so was the plan of the enemy. In Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2, God creates everything. The heavens, the earth, the sun, the moon, the land, the water, the dark, the light. He also creates his greatest creation, man. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 16, he tells Adam and Eve that they can eat freely of any fruit in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They can eat anything else from any other tree except from that tree and from that fruit. But isn't it just like humans to long for the thing that God says no to? And in this generation, God is the one who is wrong for not letting us eat what we want to eat, right? Because that's what I feel like our culture teaches us. God says no to something, but somehow we want to rationalize that it is okay for us to eat that thing that God says not to eat, to do that one thing that, said, that God says not to do. Because I feel, like, I feel like I deserve to do this, and God should understand. But then in Genesis chapter 3, like what we read, we meet the serpent Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And do we know who the serpent is? The serpent is Satan, the devil. And how do we know this, Isaac? Well, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says, and the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He has thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So we're right now, our text is in Genesis chapter 3, but we're making reference to the end of what we consider to be how God establishes the Bible. Revelation's the very end in chapter 12, where he names and clarifies that the serpent from Genesis is the devil. So to be clear, however, our temptation and our rebellion are things that come directly from the crafty serpent of the devil. When we fall and indulge in sin, when we feel guilt and shame, it is a product of what the devil has wanted for us to feel. It was in the Garden of Eden, Eden in this moment that we are seeing that guilt and shame are born. 
Again, Genesis chapter 3, guilt and shame are born. There's an author that writes for the Gospel Coalition. His name is Daniel Dewitt. He writes this, Though guilt and shame are twins, born in the garden, only moments apart, they aren't identical. Does that make sense? They are not the same. Guilt and shame are not the same. Guilt is what we feel as a result of something we've done wrong. I have a little bit of feedback, Peter, please. Thank you. Guilt says, sorry, guilt is what we feel as a result of something we've done wrong. It's tied to an event. Whereas shame sits attached to a person. Guilt says, I did that forbidden and wretched thing, whereas shame says, I am unworthy because of what I've done wrong. Guilt says, I have done a bad thing that God says not to do, while shame says, I need to run and hide from God because I am not good enough. And we know what my response is to that. Too many times we give ourselves too much credit or importance in spaces of worth. Because whenever you look to yourself as someone who is saved and someone who trusts and believes in God and you say, I am unworthy, you forget that when you surrendered your life to Christ, he clothed you in his righteousness. So when you say that you are unworthy, you are saying that his blood shed on you is not worthy. Because when he looks to you without Christ, what he sees is this crimson red stained in our unrighteousness and in our sin, the grime of our flesh. But when we put on Christ, what he sees is his son, who is all that is good. Do you understand why shame makes no sense for a believer? But it's true. We feel it. This is what we see happen here in our text. The woman is guilty of eating the forbidden fruit. Then in true form, and this might make sense to you, we bring others into our mess. So she says like, oh man. You're right. This fruit is probably really good. I'm going to have a taste. And the human side of her, of course, says, let me give some to my husband. She invites her husband to eat of this fruit also. And what is the product of this newfound rebellion? They immediately feel guilt and shame. Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. No one was accusing them of anything yet. And even without accusation, they felt the weight of guilt. And what was their response? Shame. To grab now, remember, let's actually, I'm going to jump. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. In the chapter before, how do we know that what they felt was shame? Because in Genesis 2 Verse 24, it says, and the man and his wife were both, this is before Genesis 3, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And they stood in their nakedness because there was nothing to hide. The minute they rebel against God, they feel shame. And in their shame, they cover up. Again, the point here is that without accusation, they knew they had done something wrong. Here's something else for you to consider. They're the first people on earth. A lot of us have learned to be ashamed culturally. A lot of us exist in shame cultures or in shame upbringing. So these are learned behaviors. There was no one to teach them this. 
This is the wretchedness of sin. That sin is a package. It's a bundle price. It comes with other things that damage your most inward parts. It comes with its own self-accusation. No one needs to teach you that. Shame, therefore, causes you to hide. Shame leads to seclusion. You avoid relationships. You avoid vulnerability. You avoid accountability. You avoid community. As much as you might long for the closeness and embrace of other people, shame isolates you even from God. Adam and Eve thought that they could hide from God because they knew what they had done. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8, right after our opening text, it says, And they heard, after they sowed the fig leaves, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But conversely, like we read before, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, we see that they were not ashamed prior It was sin that produced their shame. Their shame made them think that they could hide from God. Isn't that real for us as well, though? When we know that we are not right with God and we feel like, well, I'm just not going to go to church. Well, if I don't go to church, then maybe God won't see it. (laughs) Friends, this is a place where we come to deliver our offering in sacrifice to the Lord. But you cannot hide from God. And I'm going to jump into my sermon a little bit because I feel like I'm reading a lot and you're, maybe we're not connecting. So let me connect with you for a moment. The whole point is this. Salvation belongs to God. Later on, and I'm just going to jump there now. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Then Isaiah writes, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like red crimson, they shall become like wool. The point here is that we are guilty. Guilty, when you face God, makes sense because you know what you've done wrong. See, there's a contrast here between the world and judgment in God, which is this. It's like a weird upside down courtroom where the person who comes to God says, I'm guilty. I am guilty. And in our accepting that guilt, the judge, in this case God, looks to us and says, overruled. I will overturn your guilt and you will be found to be innocent simply because you have received my son for your innocence. So shame makes no sense in that space. It's almost like we... Like, we're, like I, I deserve to be punished for the things that I've done. And shame is the way that I wear my scarlet letter. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Again, we cannot hide from God. But shame is also faithlessness. It is to say that though God says we can't hide from his sight, we believe we still can. You realize this? You know God is everywhere. You know that he is omnipresent, which means that he is everywhere. And yet when we err, we still feel that we need to push ourselves away from God's presence. No. Anybody remember the story of Jonah? Right. Where he says, 
Let me run away from where God is calling me to flee from his presence. I believe it's verse 4 of chapter 1. Within the first five verses, Jonah, a prophet of God, someone who God had used to bring deliverance to his people and to bring good news, a prophet says, let me run in the other direction to flee from the presence of God. What does this tell us? That it doesn't matter how close you've been to God in the past, your shame is powerful and it can take you away from the presence of God or so you think if you allow it. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes to the church in Colossae. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he's speaking about our sin. Because what is the debt that we leave for our sin? The wages of sin are what? Death. We're, we're longing almost for death. We are dead men and women walking without Jesus. Doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how much you've donated to nonprofit organizations or how many people you've uh, helped out and how many uh, bellies you have fed. If you do not have Christ, you do not have life. Some of us feel tensions in those spaces because you don't want to see or to think that your neighbors who don't know Jesus might one day not be in paradise with you. But scripture teaches us this, that if you're a believer, you must believe this. Even if you disagree, there is only one way to the Father, and that's through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Anybody have attention with that? Anybody? Be honest with you. You don't have to raise your hand. But (sighs) the truth is that many of us have family members who have no idea about our faith. We have coworkers that we love and my best friend and my best this and my godfather, my godmother. And you know that they have no idea who Christ is. According to our faith and what we believe here in scripture and we're sold out on is that they do not have eternal life. And we should long for them to have this. So to Colossae, Paul is saying, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside. There was a debt. He sets it aside. How? By nailing it to the cross. God drove a nail, my friends, through your shame. He has done his part, but we struggle to leave it dead. Remember that I said when I was opening that shame is like this hamster wheel, and shame resurrects our pain. Because the longer you sit in shame, the longer it takes for you to forget where you were and to move on from there. So the more you sit in that shame of what you've done in your past, you'll notice that shame then also becomes an open door. If shame shows distrust in God and shame causes us to hide from God and others, what can happen to us in a place of darkness? I'll tell you what, not things of light. If shame forces you into these crevices of darkness, the longer you sit there, the faster you will find sin all over again. And so it resurrects your sin and it resurrects your pain. Sin might feel tasty for a moment. Mm. There's a taste to it. It satisfies the flesh for a moment until it starts hurting again. I was watching a little cartoon the other day 
Um, I've been just doing more research on faith and addiction, uh, or faith in spaces of addiction. And there was a little cartoon, and it came in this cartoon. This cartoon, this little thing kept running back to put its beak into this little puddle of this yellow goo. And at first, he ignored it. And then the next one, he took a little sip. The next one, he took a bigger sip. Ultimately, caving into, imploding into itself to the point where that original hit didn't last for very long. And something that I shared with the family this morning was that when I got here, I saw that we were starting to get some folks that struggled with things like addictive behaviors. And what they longed for was someone to come and satisfy what they were longing, which in many ways was this to fill their addiction, whatever it was. It doesn't matter what the addiction is. The point is that there are voids and thirsts inside of you and you don't know how to fill them and satisfy them. So just like a drug, just like a hit, we turn to Christ and we say, Jesus, make me feel what that thing makes me feel. And for a moment, because our emotions also carry these drugs in our bodies that make us feel something, they would say, Jesus, you did it. And they would come and they would say, yes, Lord. And they would come into the waters in baptism. And a few weeks later and a few months later, they were here no more. And as a pastor, I have to wonder, Lord, did we do something wrong? Because the burden in my heart is to see people saved and to stay holding on to the robe of Jesus. And then because my story is different than theirs, I realized Jesus was just a drug. But he doesn't call us to taste and see that he is good for a moment. He's asking us to surrender from our innermost to him. Some of us are sitting in this room right now when church is just a game. And I said this morning that the 9 a.m. space was my favorite. And I'll tell you why. Because what I've noticed now, especially after having two services, is that the 9 o'clock service, you have to wake up with intention to get here at 9 o'clock in the morning. You got to stick yourself to your bed and say, ah, I got it. I got I have to go. I need to go. And when you miss the nine o'clock, and this is, I'm not looking to shame anybody. As long as you're here, the, the Lord is faithful. But that nine o'clock service is different, my friends. Because for the 11 o'clock, the, the, literally the face is just... There's a difference in believers. There are some of us who recognize that there is a thirst that is so hard to satisfy here in the world. My friendships, I don't have the friends that I used to have in high school. I shared that with you last week. Also, remember I told you about being a uh, groomsman? He called me and complained about what I said last week, by the way. And what I had said, for those of you who weren't here, was that I told them that I'll do anything up until the bachelor, the bachelor party. At that point, they can't count on me at all. But the point is that I've chosen to receive Christ in my life and live differently. My life must look different. And those guys don't know Pastor Isaac. They knew Ike. That's what I used to be called for most of my life, by the way. Was it a different person? 
Well, technically, no. But one was lost and the other one was redeemed. I'm still as passionate as I was then. But just like the Apostle Paul, and I'm not comparing myself to him. He's a, he's a hero. But he was a persecutor of Christians. He was bent on making sure that he found the death for people who went contrary to his religious beliefs. He had power. He had authority. He had the energy to engage in that evil work. And then Jesus stops him on this road. And in a moment, he changes his heart. He never loses the things that God had created him with, the passions and the loyalty and the power that God had put into him, except now he was fighting for God instead of against God. God made you the way he made you, my friends. It is up to us to let him come into our lives and in our hearts and direct how we will now engage and how he made us. You can use it for your own vain glory or for your own sinful nature, or you can allow God to use it for his glory. The choice is always ours. Just like it was the choice of this woman to say, yes, there's a tree there. What she should have said, which would have helped all of us, was for her to say, you know what, serpent? I agree with you. My flesh is... I want to taste from that tree. But my creator said no. Because then the man falls to what the woman offers him. So there's this domino effect. And some of us look to blame the man. And many of us look to blame the woman. But the point is that everybody has their guilt. What I said this morning was this. Yes, it was the woman who was listening to the serpent, the devil himself, and was convinced to grab from this tree and eat it. But where was the man? He wasn't looking after his house. He wasn't looking after his wife. A woman stuck listening to a serpent in this tree for how long? And where is the husband? And he still also made the decision to let something into his mouth without asking questions. When you look back on Genesis chapter 3, she said, eat. He said, okay. If only it was that easy in real life, right? <laughs> you notice you don't have to convince people into sinning. For very long. But my hope is that all of us, in our spaces of faith and even in our spaces not of like anything religious or spiritual at work, that we would have this type of discipline. And friends, that doesn't just go from me saying it to you, it goes from me. If ever you think that pastors and elders and deacons and like that we don't, like, oh, I, wish I, I wish I could be like you. Oh, no, you don't. No, you do not. Because if you get stones thrown at you, I get rocks. The devil knows how to mess with us. And a lot of us think that we can just stand up to the devil. Wait, the devil has power. Your power and authority lies in the blood of Jesus. But you alone probably can't fight him off yourself, friends. Which is why we need to walk constantly with the Lord and remain in prayer. You cannot do it on your own. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. And you see how faithful God is that he gives us his Holy Spirit for us to be able to stand boldly and say, no. What keeps us from that constant no is the shame, though. The constant reminder of self that says, I'm not worthy of what God wants to give me, what God wants to do for me. 
Let's go back as I finish to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Friends, he has seen your mess. And through Jesus, he still makes you whole. In your repentance, devotion, and surrender, this is his promise to you. To make you white as snow. Your sin is forgotten. Your guilty verdict is overturned. Your heart is transformed. Your shame is needless. Your sin is forgotten. Your sin is forgotten. God promises that in the repentance of our heart and us turning away from our sinful nature, that he forgets. He forgets our sin. Doesn't that sound awesome? But how often we resurrect our sins. And if not in the physical or natural or however way we actually sin, but our shame forces us to replay the wretchedness of our sin. But God says, I see that you're red like crimson and I will make you white as snow. Can you do me a favor as we finish today? Would you just stand to your feet? And in this closing portion of scripture, I just want you to read with me. And as we read, I want you to meditate through what we're saying. Technically, there should be days where we don't have much to say in addition to what scripture says to explain it. We should just be able to come and read the word of God. And that's how I want us to finish today. That you would find what God has for you in his promise in Psalm chapter 121. If we can bring that up. Psalm 121 says. <laughs> nope, 121. It's at the end. There we go. Sorry. Is that it? Oh, no, this is it. I'm sorry. 120, 123. Forgive me. It says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Read, read with me. Read with me. Verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The last two verses. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And we all say together, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. One Life Christian Church is located in Baldwin, New York. To find out more about the church, visit us at www.onelifeli.com.